Hi, everybody. So uh, my talk is about getting very big by being very user-driven. And I will say that we are not very big. And so um, I might be back here a few years from now kind of eating, eating our humble pie. But, but we are very user-driven. And uh, we do have the intention to be very big in terms of the, the, the impact that we have. Uh, and also in terms of the ramifications for, we think, a much broader universe of people, not just in the education space, but outside. Um, and before I go on to the next slide, I want to say to the people here that you are extraordinarily lucky uh, to be living right now, I think, and doing what you're doing. And um, whatever kind of challenges you face day to day, people say in startups that timing is more important than anything. And I think we are blessed with the timing that we have right now. And the reason why I believe that is because if you look back over human history, there haven't been that many instances where something was created and there was this kind of stepwise transformation in terms of what was possible and what was happening. And, and kind of the world was never the same. There, there are probably about 10 instances. And uh, we can argue about you know, whether, whether penicillin should really be in there. And, but the order of magnitude is 10. It's not, it's not hundreds. Um, and it's not, it's not one. And I think it's undeniable that we're in one of those moments now. And one of the things that confuses us is that these moments don't, don't happen and then kind of immediately catch on and you move on. They seem like an extended period when, when they're in them. And, and what's happening here is, I believe, it, uh, an opportunity to use digital technologies that were created in this prolonged kind of multi-decade period of internet investment, both in terms of dollars and in terms of huge numbers of people working very, very hard, working very, very smartly to create these new fuels that we have. And I see a direct analogy to the Second World War, where after the Second World War ended, you had literally millions of people who had, who had been forged in this crucible of new sciences, things like operations research, data science, large-scale supply chain management, in this awful practice of actually trying to, to win at war, but they went back to their national countries and they, and they didn't just forget those things. They started companies like you know, GE and Japanese-style Koretsus and they, and, they, and they grew these kind of organizations that did lots of things that seem unrelated, but if you dug down, it was those same core competences of you know, operations research, managerial science, uh, large-scale supply chain management. And we have the same kind of phenomenon now where it's things like agile engineering, it's things like user-driven design, it's things like large-scale data mining and cloud infrastructure. And, and you can kind of put these things together that I think are, are really symbolized in their power by an organization like Google, where I had the privilege to spend a lot of time both before I started Aardvark and then after they acquired Aardvark. And, and I think when you take those fuels and you apply them to not just the digital realm, but to the non-digital realm, there's, there's absolutely enormous ramifications to that, to, to, to the people that are impacted, to the kind of societies that we live in, and, and ultimately to you, know, you as entrepreneurs or, or people in the businesses that get to play that role. And uh, you know, I bet you can imagine what was the picture there before this cliff picture. Um, uh, I, I own this right for $10 from, from uh, an internet business. Um, I do want to say you know, something that I think everyone here accepts or they wouldn't be here to begin with, which is you know, for startups, not going fast enough isn't the risk. And 
you have to basically wake up every single day as an entrepreneur and remind yourself that that actually isn't the risk because kind of everything is telling you that it is the risk. Anytime you go meet with a VC and you, you try and raise money, what they'll say is not, I don't like you, you know, you'll never succeed. I mean, sometimes they do, and then that's a really good sign to stop doing what you're doing. But the vast, vast majority of the sign they'll say, it, it seems like you're not quite there yet. You know, just, just a little bit more, a little bit more. And what that is, is the false summit, right? The idea that if I, just, if I just keep climbing, if I keep walking, if I keep marching, then I'm gonna get over this hill and then I'm gonna be on the tallest mountain and I'm gonna see everything and I will have, you know, I will be done. And it, it just doesn't exist in startups. You know, you'll get to that mountain and you'll be like, oh, there's that mountain, that's even higher that mountain, and then I'll need to cry. And, and VCs are actually terrified of this, that you go raise a bunch of money and you say, I'm gonna use this money to get to the peak, and then you come back and you say, hey, you know that peak that I thought we were climbing? That was actually just a, a hill, and when I got there, now I see the real peak, and so will you give me you know, 2x what you gave me last time, and then I can get there. And so you know, they're actually the most kind of terrified of this, and, and there's some truth in it. If you actually got to the real peak and you could say like, you know, we have billions of dollars in revenue and we grew 10x last year and we're gonna grow 100x this year, well then they would write you a check, that is true. But at that point, you kind of don't need it to begin with. And so, given that it's not the main risk at all, I think it forces you to change what you're trying to do. It forces you to say, how can I make sure that I don't kind of go off that proverbial cliff, that I don't kind of light a fire where I shouldn't have a fire to begin with or build a house, you know, where the, the foundation is shaky, you know, choose the analogy that you want. But for us, you know, what we've done in the past is we forced ourselves at the earliest times to actually pretend that we'd already done the thing that we're trying to do. And, you know, this is the kind of fake it before you make it strategy or the Wizard of Oz approach. And what it means is to force yourself the earliest possible moment to essentially represent what you think that you want to be eventually. And, and at, at Aardvark, which is the, the kind of picture there in the top right, um, what that meant is we had a real human being pretending to be the service that we ultimately wanted to deliver, and they were kind of cutting and pasting questions and answers across like, you know, different chat windows with a spreadsheet, and it was really slow, but it was also really accurate because, you know, you have a human being, and that's better than probably any AI you can build unless you have like crazy insane amounts of data for something like this. And so uh, we got to see like would people actually use this in kind of an early crappy form where if they did, at least that said they might use it in bigger number when we actually devote, you know, lots and lots of resources and we build it. This time around, you know, we're doing something harder than kind of social Q&A. We're actually trying to create a new model for what education can look like in the 21st century. And so the first thing we did when we started the company was to actually open a school in two months, which sounds totally crazy until you take a bunch of people who have been enormously successful in the education space and have done it again and again and again, and you take a bunch of people who have been successful in other realms outside of education who have kind of executed again and again and again, and you say, we need to do this. We need to actually open a school and it's gonna happen you know, in a couple months. And that's just gonna happen. And the point of it isn't that we will have succeeded and we'll be done and we can walk away. It'll be that we've forced ourselves to actually have as close to the experience that we ultimately wanna have as possible to see if in its earliest you know, 
half-baked form, it's still something that's really compelling for people. And I want to say here something that, you know, Ben echoed. You know, we talk about avoiding going off that cliff. We talk about, you know, the pivot. And it was something that in my first company when I pivoted way too late in the 90s, you know, we were doing enterprise software and we kind of had the right idea, we built the wrong thing, and we tried to sell it for 18 months. And when we finally figured out what to sell, it had gone from early 1999 to mid-2000. That was like a really costly 18 months to work on the wrong idea. So the second time, I was like, I'm going to avoid not pivoting. I'm going to avoid going down the wrong route. And, and, you know, these stats which come out of Fred Wilson's blog, like, I don't think these stats are accurate, but I think they're in the ballpark. I mean... His stats on a limited sample is that 80% of venture failures didn't pivot and 65% of venture successes that returned, you know, positive return did pivot. That, that meshes with my experience. It meshes with anecdotal evidence. But what's really interesting to me is that huge successes, you know, over a billion dollar public companies, over a billion dollar exits, huge impact in the world, they actually didn't pivot. And again, it's a limited sample from some friends at Cowboy Ventures, which was in TechCrunch, but 85% of huge venture successes didn't pivot. So this is interesting to me. It's not like these people who did, you know, Facebook and Google or Uber, like, you know, had the crystal ball and they were told what to do. No, they did things to prevent themselves from having to do something that was so major a reorientation that we would call it a pivot. And in some ways, what I think they did, certainly what I've seen that they did as being part of some of these organizations or working with some of these people is, they said, we're not smart enough to do intelligent design. We're going to do evolution, right? And the way we're going to do evolution is by using the evolutionary playbook. You know, evolution is two pieces. Evolution is mutation and natural selection. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to have mutation, right? We're going to maximize the number of trials that we, that we get out of the system. And we're going to do that by kind of always be trying things. And one of the very actionable things I'll say to, to entrepreneurs is you need to put yourself in a situation weekly where you are trying to get someone who doesn't really like you or what you're doing to give you time, money, you know, their student, right, like their child, like, if you're not doing that, if you're not trying to get people to come over to play with you, this, this venture that you're doing, to be part of it, and for you to help them and for them to help you and to create something together, then, you know, you're basically in your ivory tower doing hunch-driven design. You're, 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 you're basically thinking that you're good enough to do intelligent design. And... And so I think you always need as an entrepreneur and you need to push your people to not just be close to the customer, it goes beyond that. It's to always be trying to convince people to come over. You need to always be asking people what, what's wrong, what should you be doing? You need to be doing surveys, you need to be doing A-B tests, it's implicit, it's explicit. And again, it's not so that you can go build them what they tell you to build. That's bad user-driven design. It's to figure out kind of what their needs are. It's to prompt your own creative spark. And the other thing that I think you need to do is you need to figure out a way to dog food. You need to figure out a way where you become a user of your own product. You know, so for me, like, I need to have children who go to the schools that I'm making. Like, that's essential. I don't see how I can understand what, what's happening or what's working. Like, and, and I think that 
when you think about what products you're doing, if you're not able to be a user of your own product in some way, I think you're at an enormous disadvantage. Second, you need to minimize the costs of failure, right? Or else you can't afford to experiment because if you're wrong, you know, you try something that doesn't work, like now you're really in trouble. Right? And so you need to reduce the effort that it requires to launch something. You need to be able to measure things very incrementally so you can stop things before they've gone for you know, long periods of time and used up capital, used up m motivation that people have. That's one of your scarcest resources internally. And you need to obviously be able to course correct quickly. And then finally, you need to be able to maximize the benefits. This is one of the big problems in the education space right now, which is that when something works, it's limited to just that classroom or it's limited to just that child. And it needs to be able to impact lots of similar children in lots of similar situations in order to really motivate why you try things out in the first place. And here, I think it goes beyond these kind of tactics and to something more fundamental, which is I think to drive continuous change, you need to actually create different startup DNA. And for us, that begins with inverting our org chart. So I am at the bottom of my org chart. And this isn't new, you know, Neiman Marcus has been doing this for decades. Like there are lots of companies that are customer driven that literally have an inverted org chart. But that means very different things for what it is to be a C-level executive, for example. I'm there to support other people. I'm not the decider, right? I, I don't make decisions day to day. I'm part of groups that talk about why we would do things one way versus the other, but I don't make decisions. And I support the execs and kind of services layers within my organization, legal, finance, security, who in turn supports product engineering and design and communications, the people that build long-term IP and brand value. And then they support the actual kind of frontline folks who are who are serving directly your customers. And in our case, we have an added layer, which is the educator. So at the top of this inverted pyramid is the actual classroom teacher who is being supported by everyone below, not told what to do, and who has the ability to have only one client that they kind of actually have above them, which is the families that they're, that they're serving. And you know, that means as you kind of go to the more numerous employees, lower level employees, they're more responsive. They're closer to the information. As you go down you know, to the higher level employees, they're more responsible ultimately on longer term timescales. And besides kind of inverting your org chart, I think you need to obviously kind of hire the right people, but also hire for roles that are going to support evolution. You need people who are responsible for doing the things that happen. And your task becomes to set actionable goals and to use the kind of Git analogy, enable distributed version control to happen throughout your organization so you don't need to walk around and be there every moment. But you can still kind of measure what's happening and reflect and make those course corrections. So thank you. <laughs>